0: This is the legendary Tom DeFalco, and you are listening to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast of all time. And unfortunately, I was not invited to be part of this podcast. I can't believe it. A living legend like me. And they didn't even invite me.
1: Welcome to episode three of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories. As chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016, which is not so far away anymore. And for this one, we are joined by more guest hosts than we've had in the series to date, and more than we'll have in the two final weeks. So we will start off with two of our regular Spider Man buddies. Scott and Ben. Scott McElroy and Ben Merritt are
0: back. Welcome hey, back, thanks guys. For us. Thanks a lot, Blaine. Great to be here, as usual, talking Spidey.
1: We also have fractures from Horizon Labs, who we've heard discussing a variety of topics before, and including last week's episode.
2: Thanks, Blaine. Thanks
1: for having me back for this great story. Yes, And last, but certainly not least, one half of Amazing Spider Talk, Mr. Dan Gavosden. Welcome back, Dan.
3: Hey, it's always great to be on another podcast. I feel like I'm like being held captive, or or something kidnapped away from my home, and it's it's, it's a good feeling though. You're among Spider-Man
1: fans, Dan. Don't be afraid.
3: Yeah, not like that Mark guy who's always so negative about
1: everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a hater, right? And that's you know that, I got to say it's a little off topic. But one of the things I wasn't expecting coming into the when I got into podcasting was just the strength of the community.
3: Yeah, I love it. It's great It's great to be here and, uh, and to help support uh, the rest of the podcasting world out there.
1: Oh, yeah. And there's so many people I wouldn't have met otherwise. If you're listening and you don't know the name John and Wilson, you haven't been listening long or paying attention. At least one of the two. <laughs> right. He's one of the guys that we've heard from a lot. There's, there's a lot out there. All right. But this week, we are here to talk about pick number three, better known as Craven's Last Hunt. This is a six-part Spider-Man story that crossed over with the titles that were active at the time. So part one was in Web of Spider-Man 31. It continued into Amazing Spider-Man 293, then into Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man 131, back to Web of Spider-Man for issue 32, Amazing 294, and ended in Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man 132, written by J.M. or John Mark DeMatteis, penciled by Mike Zek, inked by Bob McCloud, Colored by Mike Zeck, Janet Jackson, and Bob Sharon. Lettered by Rick Parker. Edited start to finish by Jim Salakrup. And during the course of the story, Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter was replaced by the legendary Tom DeFalco. The cover dates are all either October or November 1987. And the release dates range from June 23rd, 1987 to August 18th, 1987. As already mentioned, it is number three in the countdown. Alright, so there we go. Technical specs out of the way. And probably the shortest ones for an inter-title crossover. <laughs> because yep. of their choice to have one creative team just take over all the books. I
0: think it took you like 20 minutes to go through over the Clone Saga. <laughs> <laughs> it, About that, yeah. Longer to actually record, because I didn't get all the names right <laughs> the first time. And, and this is interesting, too, because this is like one of the first times that they all crossed over. All the Spider-Man titles all crossed over together. So if you're reading it like I was, you know, you were reading Web, you were reading Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, you're reading Amazing. It just flowed so nicely. And um, I was reading in the back of the the afterword of the trade Craven's Last Hunt from uh, 1989, and I guess the original intention was to put it into Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man. Just have one creative team, JMD and Zach and McLeod, but just have it over the course of six months, and they figured you know what, let's go ahead and let's go ahead. And it makes no sense to boiler, kill off Spider-Man and bury him and then have him appear in the next web of Spider-Man as, uh you know, going around and web slinging already. So they decided to put it all crossing over into multiple titles, which they did a lot in the 90s, you know, as, you, as we know with the Clone Saga, which you already covered.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think
0: it also adds a certain,
3: like, uh, gravity to the story by putting it in, across all the titles because, you know, people for years have have discounted the stories in the ancillary titles that aren't amazing. And it, when, when you have something crossover, it says, oh, this guy could actually be dead. And that might actually mean something for the future of this book. Now, obviously, of course, he wasn't dead. Totally, But, but you know, uh, uh, re- reading this on a month or week to week basis, I think, really could have provided
0: some real drama for the readers. Uh, doing it this way, specifically. Oh, completely. Mm -hmm. Completely. We'll talk about that, you know, later, what impact it had on me when I was reading it, you know, reading it originally.
1: Yeah. Actually, before we get too far, this is probably a good point to jump in on the plot synopsis because, yeah, as we've already heard, there are some pretty major plot events in this story. Right, right.
0: Yeah. So I was going to do the synopsis like I had done uh, before with the Master Planner and Amazing Fantasy fifteen. This synopsis, the Amazing Spider-Man parts, that's parts, parts two and three, or I'm sorry, two and five, come directly from the official index of the Marvel Universe. They do a great, great job, the Amazing Spider-Man edition. And, you know, that's just verbatim, but then all the rest are uh, just written by me, which was fun to do. So um, I'll just take it part by part, and we'll just kind of blaze through it. From Web of Spider-Man 31, part one, The Coffin of Craven's Last Hunt, also known as Fearful Symmetry back in the day. Craven the Hunter laments his long, artificially extended life by smacking around previously hunted stuffed conquests while buck naked. He's generally disgusted by modern society and longs for the simpler days of the Tsarist Russia of his childhood. Meanwhile, Spidey in his sleek black threads attends the funeral of Joe Face, an informant he's used in the past at a dive bar attended by other criminals. Fearing the inevitability of death, Spidey leaves some money for Joe's funeral expenses. As Craven, still naked, preps for his hunt by consuming actual living spiders, Peter Parker awakens from a nightmare and decides to web-sling, trying to get his mind off the fact that his bugle colleague, Ned Leeds, has recently been killed. On the New York rooftops, Spider-Man is hit in the neck with a drug dart from Craven who nets Spidey like a school of trout. Thinking that he has more time since Craven will monologue as per normal, Spidey is surprised that instead, The hunter pulls out a rifle and shoots him dead. The issue ends outside in a cemetery as Spidey is laid in a coffin and buried by a dapper suit-wearing Craven and his henchmen as the rain pours down. And that leads us right into the second part for the next week that this was released, Amazing Spider-Man 293. This part is called Crawling, and this is directly from the official index. So I quote, After apparently killing and burying Spider-Man, Craven stands wearing the wall crawler's costume over a tombstone reading, Here Lies Spider-Man, Slain by the Hunter. In Midtown, the rat creature Vermin pulls a woman into the sewer. Craven, as Spidey, heads to his lair, where he laps up a liquid intended to burn off the Cravenness and leave behind the spider. He hallucinates thousands of spiders, merging into a single giant that attacks him. Meanwhile, Vermin kills and devours the woman, and a photo of Spider-Man in a newspaper haunts him. With Peter missing, newlywed, Mary Jane walks the street looking for him and antagonizes two street punks. The giant spider engulfs Craven, who realizes he must surrender to Spidey's essence to become him. The two punks chase and corner MJ, but Spider-Man arrives and beats them so mercilessly that MJ realizes this Spider-Man isn't Peter. Vermin emerges from the sewer, out in the world again, and hungry.
1: Okay, Uh, before you do part three. Sure. I know you're taking that directly from the index and it's not uh, exactly your words i do want to dispute the choice of the word antagonize for mj's relationship with those street thugs she did nothing to antagonize them they were
0: antagonizing oh. her
1: she said no thanks and tried walking away that's a good point
0: yeah that's a good point the, 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 she did yeah they, th- that's very true she didn't do anything to to deserve that that's that's for sure yeah yeah, yeah
1: that the choice of that words just struck me as blaming the victim which i have no pa- t- patience for
0: Right, 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 right. That's good. Good point. Good point. Well, that's the writer of the official index, not me. <laughs> but I should have edited that. That's true. So that leads us, good point, Blaine. That leads us to the third part, Descent from Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider Man 131. And these are my words. Weeks later, Craven, now f- having fully embraced his spiderness, goes medieval on the criminal, criminal underworld in his faux spidey guise, going so far as to even kill one of the drug dealers. As Vermin gets the courage to explore the streets above the sewer and hunt young women for food, he runs afoul of two of New York's finest, and he gets shot in the side after sicking his rats on one of the cops. Mary Jane visits Joe Robertson, the Daily Bugle City editor, searching for her missing husband, Peter, but she retreats quickly, knowing that she can't be honest with him without revealing Pete's ID. As Craven continues to imbibe in his Jungle Juice performance enhancers, he preps for an eventual battle with Vermin thereby restoring his lost honor and finally completing his victory against Spider-Man. In the sewers, Craven, dressed as Spidey, gives Vermin a sound trouncing and revels in the fact that he defeated the rat creature by himself, something that Spidey never did. Meanwhile, as spiders congregate above Spidey's grave, a black-gloved hand creeps out of the dirt, Night of the Living Dead style. And then part four from Web of Spider-Man, number 32, Resurrection. Peter Parker floats fetal position in the warm white peace and quiet before facing the very much dead Ned Leeds who promptly disintegrates to bone and ash before his eyes. Pete morphs Kafka style into a giant spider and scuttles down an underground tunnel only to be torn in half by apparitions. Pete vacates the spider carcass and having a moment of clarity that he's just a man in love with his wife, he triumphantly digs himself out of Craven's grave. Spidey staggers to the hunter's adjacent home and tears apart the animal decor, furious that he's been in the ground for two weeks away from MJ and Aunt May. Peter finally returns to the loving arms of his new bride, and after some snuggle time, he leaves to go track down Craven, much to the chagrin of his wife. With his spider sense blaring, he finds Craven in his posh townhouse, still wearing his Spidey costume. Part 5, Thunder. This is from Amazing Spider-Man 294, and this is quoted from the official index Amazing Spider-Man. With Vermin imprisoned in an electrified cage, in Craven's lair, Spidey arrives and confronts the hunter. Craven refuses to fight, believing that by killing and impersonating the web-slinger, he has proven his superiority. Redonning his old costume, he leads Spidey to the caged Vermin, then releases him, goading him into attacking Spider-Man. At first, Spidey fights back, but then backs off, refusing to play Craven's game. However, Vermin overwhelms him. Craven forces Vermin off Spidey and lets him flee. Promising to never hunt again, Craven helps the wounded Spider-Man up, urging him to follow Vermin. Feeling release, Craven shoots himself with a hunting rifle, falling back into a coffin, dead. And finally, climax of the story, part six, called Ascending, from Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 132. As Spider-Man crawls through the cramped sewer pipes on the hunt for Vermin, he suffers PTSD and flashes back to being buried alive by Craven. Spidey is attacked by a mischief of rats while detectives raid Craven's house and finds his written confession. The wall crawler finally confronts Vermin and battles him in the muck of the sewer, all the while flashing back to his previous trauma of being buried alive. Spidey traps Vermin in his webs, but when he threatens to take him up to the surface, the rat creature freaks out and lashes the web spinner. Spider-Man changes tactics and runs for it as Vermin chases after him. Vermin, getting more courage, follows Spidey up through a manhole cover, but gets totally surprised that it's daytime in midtown Manhattan and the webslinger saves him from being crushed by oncoming traffic. After dropping Vermin with the police, who have cleared the web-spinner of all charges thanks to Craven's confession, Spidey finally returns home to the loving arms of his wife, MJ. The issue ends outside in the very same cemetery where Spidey was buried alive previously. The hunter is laid to rest right next to the web-spinner's grave, And as dirt is poured over his coffin, his headstone is revealed with the fitting inscription, Craven the Hunter, he died with honor. And that's it. (laughs) Reading is hard, guys. (laughs) All right.
1: Well, thank you for doing it, Scott.
0: Uh, You're welcome. It's good to finally, you know, get back, get back to this story. Mm -hmm. It's it's such a great one.
1: Okay. And going
0: through it, there's a a few lines where
1: we can see the significance and the impact that this has. I mean, significance, this is the death of Craven, which is one of Spider-Man's earliest villains. Mm. And by earliest, like this is
0: Ditko Essential Spider-Man Volume One kind of early. Yep. Yep. In the teens, I think it was, when he was introduced. And it's funny too, Blaine, because, you know, reading it in sequence like I did, Craven was a dork villain at this point. He he was just very one note. There wasn't really I think at that time, um You know, at that time, after Stern, you know, did a lot of the vulture stories and really, you know, brought him, brought him up to prominence again, just with his backstory. Like there's, there was really few and far between, like really good Craven stories. So he was kind of like, yeah, he's a hunter, (laughs) world's greatest game, yada yada. You know, it's all the same thing. You know, being repeated all the time. So at this time, you know, Craven was just a very one note villain, and this really put him. High up in promise in prominence.
3: Yeah, they'd only fought like what, like less than a handful of times uh, up to this point. I remember when right. when our show talked to JMD, he'd expressed that like he didn't even necessarily know who Craven was as a character. He kind of just was looking back through a collection of Marvel characters and discovered Craven and thought, oh, this would be a good guy for this story. Which also gets back into the history of the story was that it was never intended to be a Spider-Man story. It was originally a Wonder Man mm-hmm. tale, and then you know, when that was an unsuccessful pitch, it became a Batman story. And I think you can really see that. I mean, even just listening to the plot, there are a
0: few Spider-Man stories that read like this story. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was, wasn't it supposed to be a Batman Joker story, one of the last ones? I, I, I remember listening to a podcast interview. It wasn't yours, Dan. But it was, I think it was on Word Balloon with JMD, and I think he, it was a long time ago for me. I like I listened to it back in 2010, so I don't have all the details. But he did describe like it was a Batman story that was rejected, right?
4: Uh, At first, it was Batman versus Joker, but it came out the exact same time that um, the Killing Joke was on the editor's desk, and he thought that it crossed over and it shared a lot of kind of the same ideas. And so it was rejected. And then it came back a few years later with a different editor as possibly a Batman versus Hugo Strange story.
3: The funny the funny thing is, though, it actually ended up being published in the end anyway. There's a Batman story called Going Sane, which is the original JMD story. So yeah, I guess, you know, you look at the success of uh, this story and you're like, well, OK, I guess we could still print that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> was going sane and fractures you might know this being an uber batman fan was that did that run through was that a separate title or was that ran through detective did it i think that was in legends of dark night ah uh, oh yeah okay right that's right that was from that late 80s like the third batman title wasn't it i mean not included brave yeah. and the bold cool
2: yeah i mean i think this this story i mean the, the thing that struck me the most and is the fact how dark this story is for a spider-man I, I mean i can't remember the last time i read a story about spider-man that was this dark mm. you've got vermin who is who is who's basically killing women and eating them mm. you've got spider-man who gets shot and buried alive and then you know one of the issues ends with blood over craven's uh family portrait mm. and you know um people will get fed up of me saying this, but, you know, I came over to England in 98, uh, having uh, been in India for a long time, only having one issue of Craven's Last Hunt to read, because that's all I had. So I made a story up in my head anyway. Which, which issue did you have? I, I had, I, I'm just looking at it now, and I had the issue where he's climbing out of the grave. Uh, which one is that now? Is that the Come web? With him climbing out the grave, yeah. That's the only one I had. Nice. Uh, but this is one of the collections that i made sure i got the minute i got here the minute i had some money and i bought it and because i was reading it around the 90s as well it didn't strike me as such a different story with the tone of the stories at the time but actually reading back going back and reading a lot of um, amazing and then reading amazing forwards is this strikes me I, I don't know what you guys think but this strikes me as one of the darkest sto- most
0: serious stories ever
2: Ever absolutely told
0: definitely definitely cuz i was i was reading it at the time when it dropped and i started reading mm. amazing consistently and all the other titles uh too it was like in, in the stern remita junior run like 230 something it was after the juggernaut story so i was reading it and i as i told on 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 other uh, episodes of this podcast you know i was working in a comic book store at the time in the 80s all the way through high school and college and this was during high school And I was reading a lot of DC, like Independent, Love and Rockets, you know, that kind of stuff. But 86, like after, you know, Watchmen dropped and I read that off the rack and also Frank Miller's Dark Knight in 86 too, I read that off the rack when it hit the shop. You know, I knew like, oh man, why aren't other people my age or others reading comics? You know, it's still, I'm doing it still in the closet almost. And You know, it's almost like, oh, it's arrived. These are not for, you know, I know it's like a trope right now. Like, oh, it's not, comics aren't for kids anymore. But in that time, it was very much still thought of as like juvenile entertainment. And in 86, like all that, all that really good material started coming out. And then it's almost like in 87, like a year later, it finally like kind of caught up with Spider-Man too, which I always had an affection for, you know, that the darkness of the story and like, wow, this is serious stuff. You know, this is... This is very cerebral.
1: It is. the In fact, the only stories I can think of where Spider-Man got close to this dark, I think are at least partly inspired by it. I'm thinking about the story immediately before the Clone Saga, where he was in that very dark place <laughs> and kept referring to himself right. as the spider, and the man was gone, which is coming straight right. out of here.
0: Right, right. I am the spider. I am the spider. I, yeah. I would
3: say something like the death of Gene DeWolf probably stands on its own apart from this story. Right. It's also- maybe not as dark but at least approaches the realms of the darkness seen here
0: mm-hmm. right right and that was the trend too cuz that was like on the heels of this as i recall too like maybe 89 or something so you know that was all you know done from this story like right after right after this story they still had an arc going through all the different titles called uh, mad dog ward and it just, you know, I, it's not hugely memorable, but it was still, you know, right on the heels of this story, you know, trying to capitalize on the, on probably the sales. Cause I know the sales got better for web and Peter Parker just because it went through it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's something that they've been dealing with for years, right? That's why when they went to brand new day and started shipping amazing three times a month, it was because they were confident and sales numbers seemed to support this confidence that the people who were buying amazing and amazing only and ignoring The other books on the market were more likely to pick up Amazing three times a month than they were to pick up the other two non-Amazing titles. Right, right. Yeah, so whatever you think of the story-based reasons that Brand New Day came about and what it followed, all the numbers support that that was the right business decision to have one story running through all the books and have your rotating creative teams taking turns on story arcs but still have one sort of continuity through line for Spider-Man.
0: And, and exactly. And like later on, like now in, you know, 2016, you know, you're not reading a single issues anymore. You're reading it as a trade or you're reading it as an arc, which it should be read. It should be read like that. And they actually in that, in the trade that I read in the 89 trade, the assistant editors, they have an afterword by Glenn Hurdling and Jim Salakrup. And they were, they mentioned, did you guys, did you guys read it? Do you guys have that in your copy? The afterword? Uh no Funny chance. okay, well, generally, it's good. I mean, it puts it in a historical perspective because they said that they got the most letters of complaint that they got from this series was from subscribers who only you know subscribed to Amazing, you know, and then they didn't have the rest of the story you you know the rest of the story there, but then they also had complaints, especially from one very vocal mom about the suicide of Craven, you know, the suicide that happened in two ninety three you know, if you're, her complaint was, if you're only reading that issue in isolation, it's like, this is glorifying suicide. And I guess at that time, teenage suicide was kind of on the rise, like in 87. So they did acquiesce that that was, yeah, that's kind of true. You do have to, because they had JMD read just that issue. And he says, oh, I guess it, I guess it does if you're just reading that one in isolation. But, you know, the whole thing, you got to read the whole thing. Cause he's like, you know, obviously insane. And, you know, that's, he's not a sane man. But you get that through the entire six parts.
3: Do, do we think that that letter and perhaps complaints like it was what triggered JMD to do the follow-up story, Soul of the Hunter? Mm. I don't know if you guys exactly have read this, that. but uh, in this story, Craven's soul is shown kind of like
0: stuck in this purgatory because he killed himself. Yep, yep. It, it does reference that, too. It says, like, in at this time, it, that came out in 92, so at that time, they were still, they were in the process of making it. But it says, it, it refers to that, that they're doing a follow-up.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben, I think I sent you that issue because I found it and I knew we were doing this podcast. I was like a year ago. I think I, it was in your... one, one of your my care? Yeah, 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 that, yeah. That Soul of the Hunter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I had, my my, my my LCS had like a ton of copies for like real cheer. I was like, oh, this is, this is good. Yes. It's amazing. I've just flipped through this
2: thing again. And there's no trademark Peter Parker, Spider-Man quip at all. I mean, there's not oh, yeah, a single quip from Spidey at all. That tells you how serious this story is. is. The closest this story gets to a
3: joke is at the end of the first issue where Spider-Man is kind of talking, and this might be my favorite part of the whole series, is that Spider-Man is talking about how he's going to escape from Kraven's net. Because Craven is just going to monologue. Yeah, yeah, he's going to monologue. It, yeah, it's a it's a great moment of like meta commentary about Spider-Man comics that's completely flipped on its head, and it's a really <laughs> nice
2: antidote to uh, to I guess typical superhero comics.
0: Oh, mm. completely.
2: There's the other funny bit where uh, you know Vermin says he's going to come out, and he's going to he's going to lift up the manhole cover. And he lifts up the mantle cover, and his eyes go all wide, and then he says, "Tomorrow or something in it, isn't there?" There's that one yeah, bit as well. Yeah, there's a spider.
0: He sees a spider. He see he sees a spider outside in the rain. In the rain, and he's like, "Oh nope, tomorrow I'll do it." Procrast, typical procrastinator. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of the significance of this story is that it is. I mean, if it's not the darkest Spider-Man story to date, it's on a very short list of them.
0: Oh, for yeah. sure, for sure
1: stories I could think that come close. There's Spider-Man The Other, kind of spearheaded by JMS, which also went through and again brought in some of these mystical elements. I think this is the first time I saw any mysticism to like a soul of a spider and man. So it's a callback to here. And then, of course, the first episode of this podcast, story number 75, The Death of Spider-Man, dealing with the ultimate Spider-Man, you know. And even that, we had more quips. I don't know that either of them, either of those stories got to be as dark as this one. Just because the the darkness that Spider Man
0: was in, and it's really it's more about Craven too. I mean, that's what it's, Craven's last hunt. You know, it's more. You know, Spider Man's really not not in it a ton. You know, and it doesn't have you know a lot of characterization uh, of, beyond the fact that he just Hey, I'm just a man. I want to get back to my wife. You know, why have you stolen my identity? That makes me really mad. You know, that's uh, it's mostly like Craven and his and his backstory, which, as I recall hadn't really been fleshed out. I mean, it's all in his, you know, in his third-person narration about, you know, I'm sick of society. It was better back when, you know, pre-Lenin, czarist Russia, when, you know, my parents were alive, you know, and I had to go to Africa to get my jungle juice to actually make this life worth living. And the only thing that can free me is defeating my, my number one enemy. I don't think like a lot, you know, you knew he was from Russia. But I don't think it was really detailed in Spider-Man continuity, you know, his his backstory that I could recall.
1: Yeah, not to this detail.
0: Unless, unless you guys know. Dan, if
1: you know. Yeah, to elaborate a little bit more, it wasn't just enough to beat his greatest enemy. He had to become him to prove that he was the superior Spider-Man. So again, echoes of what came later.
3: Yeah, uh, it's really great that you say that Craven is the center of the story because I really think that this story is about... How other people perceive Spider-Man, much in the way like like you said, Superior was kind of about that. It's it's someone trying to be Spider-Man through their own twisted lens, and 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 I love that we got that echo of Superior where he literally says those words here. Because uh, yeah, I mean, I have to think Dan Slott was somewhat influenced by this.
1: Yeah, I think that's it's a safe bet that Dan Slott actively seeks influence from previous stories.
3: <laughs>
0: really, you think so? <laughs> <laughs> yeah he does know his continuity yeah he
1: does and i'm not saying that you know he's saying who can i rip off and copy he's saying what can i use to inspire me to tell a new story that builds on the history he just exactly. loves the fact that these guys have history
0: yeah and that's what i that's what i appreciate about dan slot because you don't really have to know all the history but if you do know it just really fleshes out the story so much better because you you treat it as if you're reading spidey comics i mean you just treat it as a you know, f- more than fifty-two-year-old continuous narrative, mm-hmm. same character even after Secret Wars.
2: Yeah, <laughs> and and you can't uh, not mention the the amazing art in this mm. uh, in this comic. I mean, some things are very subtle, but you've got Craven and Peter both in the Spider-Man suits, and if you look at the way he draws both of them, he draws them so differently. You know, Craven's poses are completely different to. Peter and you, there's that bit where he comes back to Mary Jane, and you can just look that picture in the window, even with his mask off. All of us would recognise as that was Peter in the in the costume, and not Craven.
0: That's
2: mm-hmm. just, uh, and you know, when you see Craven in that suit, do you think that's where they got the idea for a muscle bound Venom? Because he looks, mm. he's he's drawn big and huge compared to the normal sort of almost athletic body that Spidey normally has. Yeah. I, I, the other thing I wondered always about this book is why vermin? Why do they pick vermin? And um, obviously Demetrius created Venom in Captain America, but I thought it, it worked out, it sort of, sort of fitting in the end because Peter spends most of the last issue scared. Mm-hmm. You know, everything he's doing is reminding him of the time that he was in the coffin, buried alive.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But he does it despite that because he is Peter Parker, Spider-Man. You know, despite his fears, he perseveres to the end. Throughout the book, throughout that last issue, he's he's telling himself that he's not dead, but he's still, you know, he's scared of the rats and he's scared of being in the tunnels because it reminds him of being buried alive. And it just, I I understand why Demetrius would use him just to show, you know, the strength of character. You know, mm. the fact that he would just, you know, he's petrified, but he's still doing the good thing, and he doesn't let his anger get hold, get the best of him. He still say, well, not saves Vermin, but doesn't. You know, he doesn't end. He doesn't kill him, let's say. Right. Uh, still hands him over to the
1: police. Yeah, and when handing him over, he's saying, it's not his fault. This was done to him. Yeah. Please keep that in mind. Yeah, right. The compassion yeah. is always there. Right. Yeah.
3: I've always felt that Vermin was a really odd choice for the story, and I liked the, the imagery of the rats and spiders, but I always imagined, like, what if Vermin was one of Cl- Spidey's classic rogues and Craven defeated him instead? I feel like it could have had a more... Like emotional punch to it, because we know the history here, rather than kind of referring to this vague Captain America Spider-Man story. like imagine if this was the lizard instead.
0: Yeah, that's who I was thinking. Yeah, of. that's exactly yeah. who I was thinking of as well. He comes as, He comes probably the closest to you know, scariness, you know, monster, sewers, And you could still play on the visual motif
2: with lizards and, instead of rats, you know. Right, but they could they have had a Craven who, like Scott said, was was I don't know if he was even C list, maybe D list villain beating the lizard. Which I, I suppose we'd all agree that the lizard was A, if not
0: B plus. Right, mm. I, I would go. I would say that
3: at the time, though, was he?
0: I mean, we're saying this with hindsight, but he he might have been in one of those parts that he might've been cured at this point, And maybe he was off the table from an editorial standpoint. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I can't recall, you know, where he was at this point.
4: The answer is pretty simple. It's the fact that Zek and Demetrius created him together for Captain America. So it was basically
0: the band getting back together. Hey, let's have a little bit of fun with our last creation. Exactly. And that was in cap because he's a Zemo. He's a Zemo construct. And then, uh, he was in, uh, Matthias was writing, uh, Marvel team up previous to this. And he was, yeah, Vermin was in a Marvel team up issue with Cap. So that was their kind of like their last, their last battle. And, you know, that's what Craven brings up too, because he's like, Hey, I can't defeat you unless I defeat one of your villains that you oh. needed help yeah. defeating.
1: Yeah. So I think the story actually works better with Vermin than it would with the lizard. I, I do too. As Frack said. Making sure you've got a villain that has to draw Spider-Man underground is part of his catharsis, mm. right? To help him get through this experience and move forward. And while the lizard could do that, Spider-Man's relationship with the lizard has been very different from his other villains because he's got that sympathy. He knows that there's, you know, a decent human being inside the lizard. He treats him differently. Yeah, that's a good like, point. The lizard may have been more apt than Vermin to recognize this isn't the real Spider-Man. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And if you get someone other than Mary Jane who has that realization, I think it becomes a different story. And possibly Joe Robertson. I and mean, one of the things I have mm-hmm. really like about the way Joe Robertson is handled is it's often implied that he's figured out Peter Parker's Spider-Man and chooses not to say anything. And just Zek's art carries that completely in the story. Mm-hmm.
3: I don't know that it's ever been more explicitly implied than in this story. You know, like, it's always on the fringe, but here a character actually acknowledges that, like, Oh yeah, he probably knows this. I don't know that I've ever seen it so directly addressed.
1: There was a moment in the Clone Saga that I re- remember from doing this podcast recently, where you know Peter and Spider-Man appear in the room at the same time because it's Ben Riley in the gear and Joe Robertson is in the room looking absolutely shocked and stunned. <laughs> like up to that point, it's like yeah, yeah, and then everyone else is totally fine with Spider-Man being there, but Joe Robertson
0: is like, "But you're he Peter's here." Hmm. Interesting. I had forgotten that scene. Nice. Me too. Yeah, I just love that little nuance about you know Spidey's ancillary characters and all the the supporting cast and stuff. Yeah, looking at the panel right now, he's like Joe. You know, Mary Jane leaves, and then he's just smoking his pipe. You know, looking at you know the Daily Bugle head headline where it says Spider Man goes berserk. He's he's got to know. He just has to know that oh something's happened to him. This is this is a this is a charade. Scott,
4: do you remember? I think it was a couple weeks ago when during a drunk Pete, there was a. A panel where Robbie tells Peter, he's like, "Go, go get help!" And um, he, he basically, it's it's giving him an excuse to go become Spider Man. Were you there for that?
0: Uh, oh, I might not have been there for that one if it yeah. was a few. My yeah, but I love those when they're always like kind of implied. They never flat out tell you, which is good. Which is a good way of doing it. They even kind of subtly went over that in the Raimi movies too. The actor who played Joe Robertson you know, gave him a look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forget if it Dan, I, I forgot if it was in Spidey one or two. It's in two. Yeah. It was, one, it was in two. Yeah. The yeah. best one. Gives him a kind of a look and you're like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm like, oh dude, that's straight from the comics, man. Straight from the source material, baby. They even play with Aunt May in that movie. Oh yeah. Totally. With her speech. Yeah. With her speech at the, at the end of, uh, that's great. Awesome. Yeah. This is a, this is a classic, man. I have a, uh, you know, whenever I can quote Stan Lee, I will. He, uh, he also, he did the intro to the hardcover and the, and the soft cover of The, of the Trade. And uh, again, in 1989, and he wrote, Stan wrote, I've been with Spidey for many years. Didn't think there was much more that can ex- excite me or surprise me in the way of new and different stories. But every so often I see a special issue, fantastically written, magnificently illustrated, and dazzlingly conceived. This is one of those times. Excelsior! So that pretty much completely typifies, you know, this, this arc.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. So we've heard from Frack and Scott about how they were first introduced to this story. Uh, Dan, how about you? You know, I wish I could tell you
3: a really interesting story
1: because I honestly just don't remember when I first read this book.
3: I mean, it must have been when I was younger and was binging. Spider-Man stories. I wasn't reading this when it was coming out. I was far too young. Uh, Not to make you guys
0: sound old, but... We prefer the term seasoned. Yeah, there we go. Seasoned. (laughs) Seasoned
3: in our fandom. Yes, yes. Seasoned.
1: Uh, I don't know. Picturing Scott covered in peppercorns, but anyway.
3: Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, actually. (laughs) Especially, specifically peppercorns.
0: Yeah, don't put me on a plate for vermin, please.
3: (laughs) I just want to see him picking your bones dry, like, within like a minute or two of
0: capturing you. Yep, big apple in my mouth, trust up.
2: (laughs) How did that get past the Comics Code Authority? And it's quite obvious that he's picking off what's left off that girl's ribcage. It's amazing. I have no idea. It's so graphic.
0: (laughs) I know. It was the late '80s, baby. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Harry Osborn could trip on LSD and uh, you know not have the comics code. You know, in the early '70s, late '60s, but uh, yeah, you can cannibalize. You know, cannibalize people, and we'll slap that code on there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I don't. I can't say. You know, actually, uh, I I don't know if I'm going to be a bit contrarian here, but you know, I'm actually really surprised that this story is as high on the list. As it is, and maybe for the reason you just said, the cannibalism. Uh, because, like, while I can re- you know recognize that this is a great story, and I I think it is a great story, I don't think that it's one of my favorite Spider-Man stories, or even in my top ten Spider-Man stories, just because it's so not how I want to read the character, like the level of darkness, and I think it's appropriate that we discuss that it's really kind of a Craven story more than it is a Spidey mm, story. Absolutely, and, yeah. I mean, I guess it shows the versatility of the character, but it's not like what I prefer to read. So it's never, I own several different versions of it, but it's never been in a real kind of like, uh, like untouchable spot for me in terms of my love of Spider-Man comics. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about that.
0: I I feel differently though, Dan. I mean, I always treat, my fandom, I always treat Spider-Man as, it's not just about Spider-Man, it's about the ancillary characters, it's about his supporting cast, it's about his rogues gallery, and I think, you know, and I've, I've, made, I've, I've made an office, like, devoted, you know, orthodontic office devoted to all of that, any Spidey villain, you know, I want that statue, you know, I want to I display it and, you know, talk about it in my daily work life. So I really treat this story as, yeah, it might not be like we like we had discussed before. It might not be, you know, the best like Spider-Man Peter Parker story, but boy, Craven's one of his like original Rogues Gallery created by Dicko and this really, really his end quote unquote just really fleshes out the character. So you know, I'm I'm in it. I'm in it top five baby top five completely
3: yeah and again i i love this issue and i think the yeah I, know. I think the resurrection scene in this is an all-time great spider-man moment like uh up there with you know amazing spider-man number 33 i don't think it's better than that but like and i think it's clearly Agreed.
0: you know uh inspired by that moment another never give up typical spidey moment you know like he's clawing his way out of that grave, just like just like throwing that wreckage off, just like uh, and then another you know again another thing that made the list was uh number thirty three AVX Avengers versus X Men, which you guys already talked about. You know I forget what issue it was, but the Jason Aaron written issue with I forget if it was like Colossus who was yeah it's Colossus you know, yeah it is beaten up. That's one of Jason Aaron's favorite issues too that he wrote too. He said like again it's the same thing. I'm gonna beat you down, but Unless you kill me, I'm gonna keep coming, and I will never give up. It's the same thing, like you know. So this that hits multiple highlights in this whole 75 greatest marvels completely, especially for Spider Man that never give up moments.
3: And and one other thing that I think is important to me about this story that makes it special to me is that I feel like this is and we haven't talked about this much yet. I think it's one of the most effective uses of an uh, the marriage. In uh, Spider-Man comics. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's one of the early, you know, stories that focuses on that. And I know that, like, the beats of this story would be repeated many times over. That The the worried MJ that's, like, worried for whatever he's doing out there. But as one of the early stories, I think it was a really effective use of that. And so if I'm making a column for, like, why Peter and MJ should be married versus why they shouldn't be. I would put this one very solidly in the like why they should be married column, and I'm not really decided on that, but like uh yeah I, I I would put this one in a win, I guess for the for the marriage
1: crowd and this is a this scene she's also had more justification for why she's worried than in some of the other ones because it's there will always be some degree of worry. It's you know something like being married to a police officer or a firefighter, there's always the risk that they're not coming home from today's shift because that's just the job. But in this one, she has seen the current Spider-Man in action and knows it is not Peter.
3: I say, did you guys get a sense that Peter was gone for two weeks? Like when he, whenever he says two weeks to me in this comic, I'm always like, "Oh, really?" Like because nobody else seems to be reacting like two weeks
2: has gone by and Peter is just missing from the face of the earth. I think that's why they mention it, though, isn't it? Because I think Demetrius recognizes the fact that the pacing doesn't really
0: convey the two weeks uh, gap. Right, right. And it it doesn't help things that the fact that even in two weeks, it's still raining. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's still raining between all of the issues <laughs> and then until the very end. so maybe there was two weeks where it wasn't raining and then, you know, the clouds came back. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about for the that. the web issue where he, yeah. <laughs> but I love the pacing on this is just like outstanding. And I just love how each issue has. You know the silent panels where the first issue, the web thirty-one issue, has the cemetery custodian like digging the grave, and you know this, you know the second issue, and it's all like it's all interspersed throughout the entire issue. You know on the bottom of the page. Yeah, and you watch him get deeper and deeper. What exactly? And then you know when he's already buried. I think the second or third issue, you know, has the the spiders on top of the grave and then just, co- they're just congregating and, and, you know, each, each one, you know, each one, you know, every other page. Uh, I think that was just a brilliant way of doing it. Did you guys read, you probably didn't, did you guys read, um, speaking of the marriage and, uh, Mary Jane's, uh, inclusion in here uh, right after they got back from their honeymoon, uh, you know, she's complaining that, uh, you know, he's not around to help move her stuff into, you know, into his Chelsea apartment now that they're living together. But they had a novelization of Craven's Last Hunt in 2014 by Neil Clyde. Uh, and It was good. I read it, you know, because I try to read every novelization that Spidey's in. But they actually, since it's in current continuity, that novelization pretty much followed the entire story. But that's the one difference that they had was, you know, Mary Jane was just, they were just, they just started, you know, they just started going out. They weren't married. But they were actually living together. But it still had the same themes of, you know, of death and and Craven's, you know, Craven's backstory, et cetera. But I felt it like lacked something, you know, because I was comparing yeah. it with the comics at the time. You know, just the fact that they, they weren't married at that point, you know, it's the big the big reveal was like, oh, he just revealed in the novel, he just revealed his secret identity to me. And that's the burden that I have to carry around. Not the fact that I've known it all the time. And the burden is I am now, you know, his wife. So that was an interesting, like, that was an interesting thing. If you guys ever read that novel,
3: that kind of stuff is just so dumb to me. It's like, it makes you wish that like one more day was just like, look, like it just included a page where the editors are just there on the page that say, look, we don't want him to be married anymore. He's just not married anymore. Like, because that kind of, like, retroactive rewriting, it's just so dumb to me. I I can't even.
1: Agreed. (laughs) So, Ben, how were you first introduced to this story?
4: Well, I first, and it's it's funny because I forgot kind of about it up until I went to go grab the trade to read it again. But probably early 2000s, I thought that there was absolutely no way that I would ever be able to collect every Spider-Man comic that there is. And then a few years later, I met a man named Scott, and he kind of taught me that that's not true. But the way I had originally started collecting was um, if there was a key story or something like that, I'd go out and I'd get the trade. And um, I originally bought the hardcover with like the Bell type logo on it with a Spidey climbing out of the grave. You know which one I'm talking about? That's I don't know I exactly what. Okay, yeah. And um, I took it to work to lend to a coworker because I was like, you have to read this, it's fantastic. So we're probably looking like 2005. I don't even think I was married yet.
1: If it is that hardcover you're describing, the copyright date says the first printing was 2006.
4: Okay, so two, so early 2006 problem, whatever. I may have just been married. But anyway, I took it to work and I was like, you, you've got to read this. And apparently they never brought it back because now all I have is the trade, the, the paperback. So I went looking <laughs> for it and I'm like, okay, where is, where, is where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I must have just replaced it with this. So if I ever see that guy again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget, with great power, there must come great responsibility, Ben.
4: Say, I also told you before last podcast, Scott, that if I got powers, I'd use them for ill repute first.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Everybody gets a grace period of a couple weeks. Until your uncle's shot. (laughs) But I live in Meaford, and that's probably
4: not going to (laughs) happen.
0: Yeah, at least none that raised you. Yeah. Not like Mark Janacchio, who has, like, multiple.
3: (laughs) (laughs) He has one per episode.
1: (laughs) So, actually, my first exposure to this was in the same hardcover Ben was describing. I'd heard great things about the story, picked it up, you know, pre-ordered it when it was solicited, picked it up the Wednesday it came out. And then it sat on my shelf with me never getting around to it until this list of seventy five greatest was published. So the first time I read no it way. was the weekend that this list came out, and I'm like, "Man, it's number three! I should get around to that." And picked it up.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: That is awesome. Yeah, so weren't for this podcast, it would probably still be sitting on my shelf unread, just waiting for the right time.
0: It, it was funny too because like last night, I was I was preparing, you know, I was doing the synopsis and everything, and then I was just on Twitter, and then some guy I follow you know he was also reading it not not anything related with what i was doing but he was relate he was uh, reading it for the first time on marvel unlimited just cuz he didn't have anything on marvel unlimited he said oh this is a great story this is supposed to be you know very good let's read it and you know so he was kind of going through it at the same time that i was rereading it you know 30 years later which is which is a great testament man to that story and also a good reason why you know marvel unlimited is a is a really great tool you know if you it, I'm a paper guy. You know that, you know, I'm, I'm paper tried and true though. <laughs> but It's interesting
2: though. It doesn't read as a data story, does it? I mean, you can read this today as a new thing and it will just be as relevant and resonate with you as much as it did uh, when we read it, um, you know, 10 odd years ago. It's a testament, you know, you, you know, good comics. You can, if you read them at any time, they'll still be good comics, and that's a testament to the writing, the skills of the writer, and the skills of the artist as well. I mean, going back to Dan's original point of, you know, I can, I, I get exactly what you're saying, Dan, about this not being, not necessarily being your favorite Spider-Man story, but for me, it's for the exact opposite reasons. It's because this was so different to any kind of Spider-Man story I read before. This always stays in my mind. Does that, does that make sense?
4: That makes perfect sense.
2: Yeah, and uh, and why it will always have a place in my heart. I I do really I do really rate this. This probably is my favorite Spidey story if I'm honest.
1: This could be like to borrow a conversation from Mission Log, which we reference pretty much every week anyway. Mm -hmm. If you listen to that one, there's some dispute between the hosts about the city on the edge of forever. A lot of people will put the city at the edge of forever as potentially the best episode of any Star Trek incarnation ever. And Ken Ray, one of the hosts, says, you know what? It's a fantastic piece of televised science fiction. But is it really Star Trek in that sense? Is it the best Star Trek episode ever? Because there's so much of it that's just so different. So it could be that. Like, this is a great story. And it could be the fact that it's just a great story is what put it on the list of top 75 Marvel stories. But if you were to say, okay, give me your top N Spider-Man stories, would it place at number three on that list? Hmm.
2: For me, it would. Uh, well, it would for me. But I suppose if you open that out to everyone, it probably wouldn't be this high.
3: Hmm.
0: As if we're if we're limiting ourselves just to Spidey Comics, mm, that's a good that's a good topic. I think it would be probably number two for me. I still think maybe number three. I I, I still love the original Ditko. I mean, number one would probably didn't this didn't make the list too, but I just love the uh, three part Spider Man No More one the Ditko one where he gave up and Johnny Storm's in it, and I just think that's just like uh, so much. Great supporting cast, and I've said that on Twitter too, like, what's my favorite Spidey story? It would probably be that one, just just for the classic, you know, giving up, Sp- giving up being Spider-Man just because my aunt's out, and, you know, all the Jonah being, you know, Jonah being Jonah. Just great stuff in there. But this would probably be, like, my number two or three, really, just because of Craven.
3: Does Amazing Fantasy 15 count as the best Spider-Man story? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, is that a cheat for me to say that's the best one?
0: At least it's in the top 10. It's number 10. <laughs>
3: hey,
2: it's not a cheat if it's not a cheat if you think if you feel that's your best one. Yeah,
3: that's true. That's true. I feel like my like relative like discomfort with placing this story so high is making me want to trade in my Spider-Man credentials card.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Never. Do, no. No. Never. Not at all. Not at all.
3: Not <laughs> at all.
2: <laughs> what did you
3: guys think of uh, the follow-up story to this, the Grim Hunt story? Oh, yeah. Is that the one with his daughter?
0: Yeah, Anna. It's the yeah the uh, resurrection I, I haven't of Raven story. I haven't read that one. I I. F- Felt I felt that it it just really lessened this not as much as lessening Aunt May's death from Amazing uh, Four Hundred also written by JMD I felt that was more of a smack of the smack in the face when they brought Aunt May back. After what was such a great story that also that one didn't make the list uh, also. Oh, I guess it was part of the Clone Saga. So I guess it did make the list. <laughs> There's like a bunch of really bad comics that made the list by that. Yeah, by that really a, really awesome one right there. That kind of made me cry at the time I read it. Yeah, but I felt they didn't really have to do it to bring Craven back. Um He was off the table for such a long time that I guess it's just inevitable. I mean, back in this time, back in 87, you know, when they kill the character, they usually they usually stay dead pretty pretty well and good. Uh, for you know, yeah, you know, like when I when he shot himself, I mean, I still remember you know that issue of Amazing. I remember where I was when I read it. It's one of those I've read thousands and thousands and thousands of comics over the course of many 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 years. You know, because I never took a break, and it's like very few times can I because I read so many. Very few times can I remember like where I was when I read that story, you know, because it, it it impacted me so much. It was like, I was like right before college, right after high school, I just graduated with summer, you know, and I was like, holy blank Craven just shot himself. I can't believe that. And I, I took it as, Hey, that's gospel that's happening. That's he's not, they're not going to bring him back next issue.
3: I agree with you, uh, that it kind of cheapens it a bit, but at the same time I, I was entering into the grim hunt with like real apprehension about the idea of Craven coming back. But spoilers for that story, when he comes back, he's really furious with the people who brought him back because he's like, I died an honorable death. Like, how dare you bring me back? And for me, that really elevated it to, I mean, I wouldn't say it's as good as this story. It's not nearly as good as this story, but it it gave it something special that said like, oh, we're not just bringing this guy back and foregoing all the progression for this character like he's back and that makes him furious because he did achieve what he wanted to in this
0: former story um so i thought that was a really interesting spin on it good point yeah that he wanted nothing to do with it overall that he was upset at his relatives for doing it you know that's true yeah that's true and now you could read about his exploits, uh, Craven's exploits, and unbeatable Squirrel Girl, <laughs> 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 too. So <laughs> you know, where
3: he's still an unkillable monster that can only be killed by Spider-Man's hands, which is in canon right now that Craven can only be re-killed by Spider-Man. Otherwise, he's an immortal. I love comics so much. <laughs>
2: See, I knew it was a different Craven the minute he decapitated that gorilla with one shot, <laughs> with one hit. And I, and I remember the first time I read this, saying, "Holy cow! He just decapitated a live gorilla with it. What is going on? What's happened to his power set?" And then I realised that they were stuffed uh, trophies. <laughs> they, they really don't like the stuffed trophies, do they? I mean, he 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 destroys a bunch of them, and then Spidey destroys the other bunch, and you know. No wonder he wanted to kill himself.
0: Doesn't anyone have any respect for office decor? Come on. (laughs) Or the dead. (laughs) Or the dead. All right. So with that,
1: actually uh, going to the part of the podcast that we have blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Are there any messages, morals and meanings that we can learn as we're, you know, coming away from this story?
0: Identity theft really sucks. (laughs) That's as a, as a, as a, Past victim of identity theft.
3: <laughs> I was going to say something about treating taxidermied animals as you would
2: <laughs> your loved ones, but. <laughs> well, I-, I struggled a bit. I don't think there is a moral to this story. Is there really? I mean. Yeah.
1: Well, Aside from saying, you know, your identity is more than your name, because that's it. There's two different ki- kinds of Spider-Man and they're very different. Like the superior one, Craven was much more brutal, right? It it's yeah. you know, it's mm-hmm. like when Doc Ock had the role, as was discussed mm-hmm. much earlier in this series. So there is that, and some of it is just, you know, your choices make you who you are, not yeah. not your outfit, not your name.
3: And I think I think that, that is echoed through Peter's resurrection scene, where he's climbing up through the tunnel and he sheds the spider exterior, revealing that he is Peter Parker. And that's just kind of another way to underline the idea that, like, no, I'm I'm not just the spider as, you know, people see me. You know, what makes me special is Peter Parker. Mm. And I don't know if we get a lot of, like, solid reasoning for that in this particular story. I mean, Peter Parker is such a non-entity in this story. Uh, yeah. uh, but it
0: is an interesting idea, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fourth part, the fourth part. The fourth chapter, the resurrection, that's like really, that's the Peter Parker story right there, mm-hmm. you know, coming out of that grave. That's very well done. There's no, no rest for Ned Leeds. <laughs> yeah.
2: Although I felt, I felt the bit where he goes to the funeral of his informant, uh, informant. I thought that what, what, was, what is that bit doing in, that, in the story? Is it sort of to give you a bit of continu- continuity from before or um, it sort of, it breaks the pacing a little bit. I, I don't know I I don't know Do you guys do you guys think that or am I just uh...
0: I felt Yeah I mean I felt that it was it was it was appropriate in um in just you know How do these guys see me These are criminals and I'm playing respects I'm not here to fight Do they see yeah, me as sure. a monster Do they see me as a cop I want you just to see me as a man who cares about someone who's passed away and that's why I'm leaving the money Oh uh, yeah I see that Yeah I can see that.
1: Yeah, it, it could have been for continuity, though, because I can't imagine that if this was originally pitched as, you know, the Batman story or the Wonder Man, the introduction is in that hardcover that Ben and I have read it in, where he says, yeah, it was originally a, a Wonder Man Grim Reaper story, and then became the Batman Joker story, and kept going through different iterations, they wouldn't necessarily have had a funeral of Joe face to attend. Now, it's not saying De DeMatteis didn't see the importance of that, and maybe he would have had, you know, the, whoever the hero was attending the funeral of a character we'd never seen before, just to say, yeah, death matters, right? And and dead is dead, and put that context and gravitas to it, because that that could just be bucking the comic book trend of having the dead return. Where we see in Peter's mind, dead is dead, and right, this is a character that's not coming back. It could be trying to drive that point home right before you kill off your hero, kind of.
2: God, the art is so good in this. I know, I, was, oh, so I could look good. at it all day long unbelievable it is.
0: knowing your office you might actually be looking at it all day long i do i do have a print from uh i've ha- i do have a print hanging and i'll have to take a picture of signed by zach you know of him him with the him with the costume craven mm-hmm. i'll nah. take a picture and put it on the facebook uh on the facebook group for this <laughs> <laughs> i do love the black costume i always love the black costume that's the other thing that the novel Really made it. The cover of the novel is just right out of the right out of the com- right out of the comic with the black costume. But the the novel made known that it wasn't the black costume; it was the red and blues, which I felt was an what? odd choice. It, I know on. it was an odd choice. Yeah, the the novelization Uh they had the red and blues, and and I, I made a note of that in my head. I was like, why did they do that? You know, why can they just keep it alone? Especially since the cover of the novel. Uh, is him coming out of the grave? You know the the typical that's on this t- that's on the cover of the trade that you guys have. Yeah, that's
3: just Mephisto screwing with everybody. <laughs> He's like, I'll just change a couple of other things too while I'm yeah, here. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Some stray bird. Yeah. It could also
1: be just. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if the novels are being marketed and aimed at those who aren't already reading the comics because they figure if you're a comic reader, you're probably going to buy the comic. And those who right. buy the novels are right. going to be the diehard Spider fans like Scott here. Like me. <laughs> or maybe people who don't normally go into comic shops, but like Spider-Man from the movies who see that on the shelf, and they right. just didn't want to have anything in that novel that would remind you about Spider-Man 3.
3: I, I would love to see <laughs> yeah. that bizarre Venn diagram of readers of the comic and readers of the novel that, like, yeah. how much that is an intersect. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. Ah, that should be an Euler diagram anyway, but that's the math history geek in me. <laughs> Venn didn't dro- when Ven conceived them they weren't overlapping circles, he had a third separate circle inside. And it was Leonard Euler who said, No, it makes more sense if they overlap, but Euler had so many things to his name already that he just left Venn's name on it.
3: This Venn guy is worse than Christopher Columbus.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, Pythagoras is worse than Christopher Columbus. He neither discovered nor proved the Pythagorean theorem, but that's a totally different story. <laughs> Uh, Euler was the most prolific mathematician in history The average mathematician has to publish three or four times a year To make mathematics a full-time job And Euler slowed down to one publication a week after he went blind
3: Wow I'm adding all these names to my people-to-kill list
1: Well, you're a couple centuries late for all of them so far
3: (laughs) I'll figure something out
1: so we've had some discussion in this already, but why do we think it landed at this point in the rankings? And when we discuss this, we usually look at the three things, the entertainment value, the impact on the industry, and the messages and morals. And you know, we've already said the messages are kind of light, at least, if present at all. It's at the point where, is it something the creators put in? Or if you're getting a message, is it something that you read into it? But yeah, for the rest, I think it's here because it's it's an extremely well-crafted story that had an impact on the way Spider-Man stories were told from this point on. Mm-hmm. So it it's got the right. entertainment value and the influence, but does it belong in spot number three?
0: And also continuity too, because I mean, this story is you know, whenever there's a variant cover with you know the history of Spider-Man and what are the key points? This him coming out of the grave is always always on there. You know, when the when he when he came uh, when he finally came out of Ox brain and, you know, after, you know, with Goblin Nation, you know, there's a double page spread of Coley uh, where he's like, hey, I remember everything. And there's the background of all the different events in his life. That's, you know, him coming out of the grave is like incredibly, incredibly prominent. Mm-hmm. But it also might be harken back
2: to what I was saying before is that, you know, you, when you're in, whenever you vote, you vote for things that you remember the most. And maybe loads of people just remember the story because it was so different. From every other Spidey story, you know, that might be the reason why it is uh, up as high as it is. I mean, for me, uh, I suppose it it should be that high up.
1: Yeah, even just looking at the list, there's only two stories that ranked higher out of everything Marvel's ever published. Mm -hmm. Spidey plays, I don't know if he's kind of like the the least important main character or the most important supporting character in Civil War. But it certainly would have been a different story without Spider-Man's influence and the way he participated. Definitely.
2: I've got a real issue. I've got a real issue with that plot point, but we won't go into that.
0: Now. <laughs> That's for next week.
1: <laughs> uh, story number one is again a dedicated Spider-Man story. Spoilers: the death of Gwen Stacy. So
0: that is a great story.
2: That deserves to be number yeah, one. Yeah, I,
1: I agree that death of Gwen Stacy belongs higher on the list than Craven's Last Hunt. Looking back at the other Spider-Man stories, we have had Amazing Fantasy fifteen, the kid who collects Spider-Man. Mm. Spider-Man. Oh, so good. Spider-Man Maximum so Carnage. Good.
2: <laughs> no, not so sure.
1: There's amazing thirty-one to thirty-three, the Master Planner trilogy. There's that amazing, yeah, amazing Spider-Man number fifty. The Spider-Man No More. Yeah, yep. the Spider-Man thirty-six from the second volume, the nine-eleven mm. issue. Uh, spot number forty-six was amazing seven hundred, which that was a great issue. Yeah, which kicked off the yeah Superior era. That
2: was a great issue.
1: Yeah, we've got amazing one twenty-nine, but I think that's here because of the Punisher rather than Spider-Man. Yep. There's the Clone Saga, down at 65, annual 21, which was the wedding of Peter and Mary Jane. Right. Right. And then, you know, of course, spot number 75, the first story on the list was Ultimate Spider-Man, the death of, you know, the ultimate Peter Parker.
0: Right.
1: So, you know, while I agree that Kramer's Last Hunt should be on here, and, you know, it it could be because I'm reading it out of sequence, because going through and, and reading it, I get why it's appreciated. I don't get why it is as high as number three. Mm. I mean, a- as Dan said, it you know it may be a little higher because even – I mean, Fracture said that this is different from the rest, but I mean, just last week, Fractures and I were discussing Daredevil Born Again, which is, you know, about this dark in mm-hmm. a lot of ways and published the year prior. That's just – that one, first issue came out in 85, so Born Again predates your Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns. Mm-hmm. And- Right,
0: and I would happily put Born Again over this book. You know, even as a Spider Man fan, I think I would too. I, I would maybe just switch roles, maybe just say, you know, I still would keep craving pretty high. But I mean, Daredevil Born Again, as you guys have already listened to, I mean, that's just a great. That's just a that's a great arc, man. Oh, no argument there. But I suspect Spidey's just got a bit more.
2: Um, I mean, voting is an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, to try and figure out why. Why the public voted for a certain thing. There'd be loads of reasons why they did that. And I suppose Spider Man is more recognizable in general as a Marvel character than Daredevil is. Not anymore, I guess, with Netflix and all that. So I, you can see why Spidey would be higher than Daredevil, a Daredevil story, let's say, because more people might have read Spider Man, might have read
1: Craven's Last Hunt than Born Again. But uh, Yeah, especially since these were free form email submissions. It wasn't like there was a prepared ballot that you were picking. I never from. voted. I didn't even know this was happening.
0: Yeah, I didn't either. This was back in 2014, and as a sample, anyone else on this call voted for for this online? I did. No. Ah, Blaine, you did. You're part of the shadowy cabal. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Blaine, what did you vote for? I voted for Daredevil Born Again. All Daredevil, I'm guessing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I only had about 10 or 15 titles on the list. I didn't go with the full 75. The ones that I voted for that didn't make it were Daredevil Follow the Kingpin. And that was the only Daredevil story I voted for that didn't make the list, really. Well, that and the first of the uh, Wade and Somni arcs, because they were just kicking butt. Probably the the best run on the title. Um, I also had the nine cent issue of the Fantastic Four from the Wade Ringo run. Oh, yeah. Because that was just,
2: that was, that was a the shot in
1: the arm that that series needed. Yeah, yeah. Right. If you want to understand why I've been so disappointed by any Fantastic Four movie that actually has the words Fantastic or Four in the title as opposed to The Incredibles, read that <laughs> issue. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. All right. That was a good issue. Yeah, I did vote for a few things, but yeah, I, I think a lot of this, you know, as we've discussed before, you're only going to vote for things that you've read. And the long-term popularity of Spider-Man just means more people would have read Craven's Last Hunt than Born Again.
3: Yeah. The very fact that Maximum Carnage is on this list says to me, more than any other like, ideas I have about voting, it's no way about quality. It's 100% about readability and popularity in like the popular consciousness. Because otherwise, like, I could think of—I mean, we talked about this on the previous show—I could think of 100-plus Spider-Man stories I would make on this list before that story.
4: They were voting for the red cartridge. Yes, I know. The red
3: cartridge is great, and it's got that great score by Green Fuzz, or whatever their name is. (laughs) Green Jelly. (laughs) Green Jelly. I'm sorry. Green Jelly. (laughs) I'm going to go back in time. They had to to legally change their name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go back in time and convince them that Green Fuzz is a better name. (laughs) But yeah, that sounds like something from the cartoon Doug.
1: Like, he would like the band Green Fuzz. I'd like to... Thank you, everyone, for joining us here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, I believe the only one in the group here that has a podcast running right now is Dan. So, Dan, why don't you tell everyone where they could find your stuff? You can
3: follow uh, all of my stuff. Uh, you know, I have a Spider Man specific site, SuperiorSpiderTalk.com, where we do like reviews and features and all kinds of stuff. And I also do a podcast associated with that site called The Amazing Spider Talk, where we review all the latest issues of Amazing Spider-Man, we talk about our own list of essentials, which, you know, I think is is held in just the same light as these 75 greatest Spider-Man stories. Uh, we're, we're, we're so well regarded. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so we do that, and we do interviews with creators and stuff like that. It's a lot of fun. If you like Spider-Man a lot, if you have a cursory knowledge of Spider-Man, there's kind of an episode for everybody, and Yeah, again, that's the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. I know several of you guys Mm -hmm. are listeners to that show. So you talk about how great the show is in Mm -hmm. your own outros.
4: I just took the shirt off because I thought it'd be weird if I was wearing it.
1: (laughs) 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 All right. Okay. So from there, uh, those of you who are reading along at home as we go, next week we are looking at Civil War. It's the original seven-issue miniseries, which has been collected in trade paperback and hardcover formats. It's available on Comixology and on Marvel Digital Unlimited, and it was also available in a GitCorp DVD-ROM that collected the entire event with all the ancillary tie-ins, which is one of those rare cases where these days the reprint is actually more valuable than the original issues, just because of sheer supply and demand. Those GitCorp DVD-ROMs are hard to come by these days. Huh. Wow. So again, thanks everyone for joining us.
0: Thanks, Blaine. Thanks so much, Blaine, for uh, for doing this. It's always it's always great to always great to talk to you.
3: Yeah, these are a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, it's always great to do them. So, those of you listening along at home, please don't forget to rate this or Amazing Spider Talk or any other shows you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcast you you use. It really does help the shows get noticed and help build their audience. You can, of course, share links to them with people who you feel may be interested. You can come over to Facebook where we've got presences for both the. Unofficial 75 Greatest Marvel's Countdown podcast has a forum for discussion. Amazing Spider Talk is available on Facebook as well. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Sutras. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.